0: Matthew chapter 4 is where I want to direct your attention. This morning I'm going to read from Matthew 4 verses 12 through 25 um, just as we begin. Today's the day that Todd Kramlick was supposed to be preaching, but he is in Thailand. And uh, next week is the day that we were supposed to have uh, the Suzas visiting with us, Uh, but they're hopefully, they expect to be leaving Brazil to come to the United States next week. You could pray for them about that. Things change daily uh, when it comes to international travel, and uh, maybe they'll be with us sometime in July. I'm trying to see if we can arrange a visit with the Sousas then, which would be wonderful. But today we are in Matthew chapter uh, 4, starting at verse 12. So you follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Gentile, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee to teach in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering Uh, Those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. A few weeks before the pandemic, I was visiting Marjorie York, and we were sitting together. She was eating lunch. We were in the cafeteria uh, at Willow Valley, and uh, I was showing her pictures from my phone, and I showed her a picture of uh, Claire with a statue of General George S. Patton. And we were talking about that for a little bit, and uh, as we were talking, an older man rolled his wheelchair up, and he said, excuse me, were you talking about Patton? Yes, I knew Patton. Really? He said, yeah, I was a part of the U.S. Third Army and I was a part of his support staff. I knew General Patton. That was not a conversation I expected to have that day. <laughs> and had I had more time, it would have been a much more interesting conversation to talk to him about what he remembered about that man who was instrumental in the invasion of Europe that brought an uh, end to World War II. Uh, an eyewitness account of this fascinating character in history. Now imagine for a minute that you lived 2,000 years ago on the coast of the Mediterranean and a team of people come to your town one day and they start talking about uh, this man. Uh, his name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's a Jew. He's more than an ordinary human being. He was crucified by the Romans. He died and he rose again and he is the Savior. And you hear this message for the first time and you believe it. And you become associated with other Christians, and you meet together with them in this thing called this church. And imagine some of those conversations that you would have about Jesus. You get together to talk about following him and 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 uh, uh, worshiping him. Wouldn't you have questions? What was it like to really know him? And and how did he heal people the way he did? And and what were some of the things that he said? And how did he respond to angry people? And what made him happy? And I. Uh, all the questions that you would have. There'd be news, you know, there's a lot of eyewitnesses still, uh, people still alive who knew him. You should talk to them one day. Oh, that'd be great, man. I have so many questions. And because of those questions, in part to answer those questions, we have four parallel accounts in the Bible, in our Bibles, of the life of Jesus. Jesus. Written by eyewitnesses or those who spoke to eyewitnesses to answer those questions that people would ask. But they're more than just collected stories. Because the eyewitnesses, when they would hear the questions, and can you imagine how many of the questions they heard and how often they heard them? But when the questions came, people, uh, the, the, the eyewitnesses would hear themes or repeated questions. Um, questions that would relate to how to follow Jesus, uh, what does it mean to be his followers. So they wrote these books, and they're not just collected stories, but they're stories with the intent of helping people follow, help his followers follow Jesus more faithfully. Make no mistake, Jesus makes demands of his listeners. Y- you don't have to, you can say no to Jesus. He makes demands. You can say no, but there is no question that he makes those demands. I think you can make a pretty good case that Jesus is history's most popular figure, who is also history's most co-opted figure. His face, or at least what we imagine him to look like, his face and his words have been used to support almost any cause that, that uh, people have cared about. Is there anybody who really knew what he was like and what he really said and what he really meant and what he meant and, and how that implies or what that implies for us as we follow him? Yes, we have that, those, that material, that information is in the Gospels. When we come to chapter four, we're at the end of Matthew's introduction. He's already told us a lot about Jesus. He has foreshadowed for us how the people in Jerusalem are going to respond to him. They're not going to be impressed. He's told us about how Jesus is the culmination of the hopes and expectations of the prophets of the Old Testament. We know that from John the Baptist. Uh, We know that Jesus is the one who has spiritual power to defeat our spiritual enemy. We see that in the temptation. And here at the end of chapter 4, there are three scenes where uh, Matthew introduces us to three more images of the Lord Jesus that are going to unfold in the story. And I want to walk through this text. Um, I want to give you those images, the wording of them I borrowed from Frederick Dale Uh, Bruner. I want to give you those images, and then I want to think with you through those images. What does this imply for us as we're trying to follow Jesus? So, three three images to see about Jesus in this conclusion. Here's the first one. Jesus is the light of the nations. He's the light of the nations. Let me ask you a question, where would you find Jesus? If you walked into a high school cafeteria, where would you find Jesus? Now, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but stereotypically, high school cafeterias are the most segregated places in America, right? Not necessarily segregated by ethnicity, but by interest group. So, here's the jocks, and there's the nerds, and uh, there's the popular kids, and there's the rebels, except they're not there, they're out smoking somewhere. And, and there's, there's the really smart kids, and then there's a section that's just left for people who don't have another group to hang out with, they have found themselves, and they're sitting at that table. Where would Jesus be sitting in the cafeteria? Well, Matthew tells us where he was, and he tells us why he was there. So verse 12 begins with Jesus going to Galilee. He was born in Galilee. Galilee is the region where the town of, no, sorry, he was born in Judea. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, and Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. He wasn't there. He's not there, at least at the beginning of verse 12. Probably he was down south in Judea. I'll show you a map in just a minute. Um, He was there where John was ministering, but after John's put in prison, Jesus goes back up north to Galilee. And he leaves his hometown of Nazareth and moves to a new town, Capernaum. It's a lovely village by the lake, uh, by the Sea of Galilee. And he goes there and Matthew sees in him moving there the fulfillment of prophecy. There's that passage, that that familiar passage Formula that Matthew uses to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Matthew uses that phrase a lot, doesn't he? We've already seen that first three chapters of this book. Um, We should talk about the differences a little bit between Galilee and Judea. So Judea is in the bottom of this map. You probably have a map in your Bible, right? Because if you had a Bible without a map, you would sell it and go buy a Bible with maps because every Bible needs maps. Well, here's a map. Um, Judea is uh, orange and in the south, and Galilee is yellow up in the north. There's all those towns there. We don't need to know those, but since I have a pointer, I can do it, right? Capernaum is right there, of course, along the Sea of Galilee. There's Nazareth. So he moved a little bit to the northeast. Um, Galilee and Judea are quite different regions, Galilee is uh, more diverse. It's more diverse ethnically because it's more diverse ethnically. It's more diverse religiously. You can see Isaiah the prophet and then Matthew echoing it calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. There were more Gentiles up in the north. It's a lush region. It's a prosperous region, a good place for farming. There's economic uh, produce to come from the Sea of Galilee. There's a lot of people up there. Um, But they don't have the reputation up in Galilee because they're so close to the Greek areas of Syria. They don't have the reputation in Galilee for being as religiously faithful as they do in the south, in the south in Judea. I say religiously faithful. You might also say self-righteous. Because in the south, Judea is where well, it's a more mountainous range, so people don't mix quite as easily, and uh, more a uh, uh, higher percentage of Jewish population. And Jerusalem, the heartbeat of uh, the temple, the heartbeat of the religion of the Jews. Matthew says something different, though, about this area. He, quoting Isaiah, says that it's a place of darkness, spiritual darkness. My translation actually in verse 16 says the people living in darkness, and then on those living, your translation might say sitting. Sitting. If it's so dark that you can't even walk, and all you can do is sit, it's very dark. Very spiritually dark. It's so dark, they, as it were, live in the land of the shadow of death. It's dark. It's just dark. Now, there's a couple things to note from this from this observation that Isaiah and Matthew are making about this region. Uh, it helps us think about a compelling question that, that followers of Jesus ask sometimes. We talk about it uh, quite a bit, actually. How do we, as followers of Jesus, think and talk about those who are not followers of Jesus in other religions? How do we evaluate those who make Truth claims that are contrary to what the Bible teaches or contrary to who Jesus is or they, they have a faith tradition that doesn't have a place for Jesus. The popular opinion is to say that all religions are basically the same and they have some light. All of them are helpful in some way. That sounds very open-minded. It sounds very tolerant. It does not sound very apostolic because Matthew wrote about that region as a place of darkness. And there is only darkness until the light of Jesus shows up. Second thing to note from this is that, that Jesus' coming, it's, this is a reminder because he goes to this very dark place. This is a reminder that his coming is wholly all of grace. It's a mark of grace. Jesus did not go to the people who deserved him to come. He did not come to the semi-enlightened. He didn't come to the semi-spiritual. He didn't come to those who were looking for the light. He came to those who were in the deepest dark. Now, now there's no one, none of us who deserve for him to come. But here he comes into this very dark place, all of grace. Jesus comes to those who are broken And those who are stubborn and lost and angry and confused and proud and stuck. Friend, there is no level of darkness in your life that Jesus cannot bring light to. He comes holy of grace. It's almost as if, this is not how this happened, but it's almost as if the father and son looked at a map themselves in the back of their Bible. No, that's not how that happened at all. Okay, that's not how it happened. It's almost as if the father and son looked at a map, and and the father says to the son, where are you going to go? And the son says, there. It's so dark there. They need my help the most there. That's where I'm going to go. All of grace. It's all of grace. Where would Jesus be in the cafeteria? What table would he be sitting at? Or, more poignantly, in the last three weeks in the United States, what neighborhood would you expect to find Jesus? Be careful in answering that question because uh, the answer to that question that you have is probably too long to tweet or put on a poster. Verse 17 tells us his, his message. What's Jesus saying here in, the dark, in this dark region? From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is a message that is identical to John's. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist had been saying the same thing. Jesus is not an innovator. He came to amplify, clarify, and magnify what the Father had already revealed through his Old Testament prophets. And Jesus comes preaching this same message. And it's a message about the kingdom. The kingdom is very important in Matthew. The message of the kingdom is going to develop. We're going to talk about this in the weeks that are to come. But where do we we start when we think about the kingdom? Well, I think we should go back to Isaiah 9. So in Matthew 4:15, um, Matthew has quoted already from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. And then in verse so, so when we think about the kingdom, let's go back to Isaiah 9 and think a little bit about what's there. And I want to show you a verse that you all know. Isaiah 9, we read this at Christmas time. And see, is there kingdom here? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Government, there's a kingdom word right there. He will reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Here's the kingdom that we're thinking about. And what's important here to note is the kingdom is near because the king has arrived. In Matthew 4, here comes that promised son. He comes to a very dark region to shine light. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And he's bringing David's kingdom. To be ready for that kingdom requires a reorientation of your life. That's why he says, repent, repent. Again, Jesus magnifying and amplifying the message of the Old Testament. This word repent is one of the favorite passages of the Old Testament, words that Old Testament prophets used to use. In my Bible, it's most often in the Old Testament translated to the word turn. The prophets would stand up in ancient Israel and they would say, turn, turn back. You who are wandering away from God and all that he planned and purposes for you as his people, turn back. Turn back. And Jesus comes and says the same. Turn back. Repent. Turn back. This reorientation of your life. Matthew's readers would know that as followers of Jesus, they're in this turning back process. And Matthew here is affirming and confirming them in what they're doing. They're in process. We are followers of Jesus are repenting people. We're turning back people. Now that reorientation takes shape as we move to the second image that the uh, um, that Matthew uses in this next scene in this passage, Jesus is the light of the nations. Secondly, he's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the church. There's a pattern in verses 18 through 22. I'm not sure if you saw the pattern or not. Um, Jesus meets two sets of brothers. They're both uh, fishing. He issues to them the same call, and they have the same response. The wording in the original is identical. I'll show you how similar it is even in this uh, translation. In fact, look at this. So in verse 18, he meets two brothers, Peter and Andrew. He calls them in verse 19, and then verse 20, at once, you could almost say immediately, at once they left their nets and followed him, right? Right? Then he goes, verse 21, and meets James and John. Jesus calls them in verse 22. Immediately, you could almost say at once, they left the boat and their father and followed him. What happens is that the call comes first, which is unusual. In the ancient world, a rabbi would have accumulated for himself disciples, but the disciples would have come to him and said, Rabbi, can we follow you? Can we be your disciples? In this instance, though, Jesus is calling them. That's unusual, except Jesus told them that this would be the way it is. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. It's exactly what happened in this passage. Uh, Again, holy of grace, holy of grace of grace jesus calls them this call to follow is probably not their first encounter with jesus in fact uh, the gospel of john seems to indicate that they had some dealings with jesus before but here he ups the ante he invites them officially and formally come be my disciple come live with me travel with me i will teach you i will disciple you and the text says that they leave immediately That's important, that adverb. Immediately they left. Well, they left something behind. Uh, Peter and Andrew leave their nets. And James and John leave the boat and their father and followed him. Peter's going to talk about this later in Matthew chapter 19. He's going to talk about this to Jesus. Peter says to uh, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. Here is the model for us in Matthew 4. Following Jesus will look in some ways different for all of us, but what all followers of Jesus have in common is that we leave things behind. We have left things behind. What is it for you that you've left behind? In in this instance, it was a business... And uh, relationship with their father. Uh, Jesus doesn't call everybody to leave business. He doesn't call everybody to leave um, uh, relationships like this. He calls us all to leave something behind. What have you left behind to follow Jesus? Maybe a relationship of some kind. Maybe a a career aspiration. Sometimes... The call to follow Jesus involves leaving behind good things, other blessings he's provided. Sometimes the call to follow Jesus means leaving behind things that you really shouldn't be clinging to in the first place. What is it that you have left behind? Some of you struggle with this. You struggle with this because you keep picking up, back up what you're supposed to leave behind. Can you imagine if uh, during the three years Jesus is leading Peter and Andrew and they're following, and Peter carries those nets, those three years. Jesus says, you should have left those back in Capernaum. It reminds me sometimes, uh, this didn't happen often, but when our children were especially little, okay, kids, we're going to go for a walk. We're going to go for a hike. Get ready to go. And their idea of getting ready to go is collecting 42 stuffed animals. And you say, no, 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 no. We're walking through the woods. You don't need those stuffed animals. Yes, I do need those stuffed animals. No, you don't. Leave them behind. Has the Holy Spirit said to you, leave that behind? I'm a member of Generation X, so our greatest hobby at this point in time is to watch millennials and boomers fight with one another and complain about each other. It's a great joy. Uh, We don't care about anything except we find joy in watching them argue. And one of the ways that that, uh, that boomers complain about the millennials is they complain that millennials don't make decisions. They refuse to choose. Mark Dever wisely, uh, gently calls this worshiping at the altar of opportunities. I can't make a choice because I have all of these opportunities. And if I choose one thing, it means saying no to everything else. I can't commit to this because then I won't be able to do this and this and this and this and this. And I don't want to say no to all of these things. They they look, they look all look like fun. I don't want to make any choice. So we delay making a choice as long as possible. What are you doing this weekend? I don't know. I'll know by Friday about 530 when I have to make a choice of some kind. Longevity on the earth, that the boomers are mastering, longevity on the earth will teach you that making choices is necessary for a satisfying life of any kind. You have to be able to say yes to things, which necessarily means saying no, but if, if, you, if you never say no, then you've never really said yes. And Jesus calls these Disciples, these men, and he calls them to say no to things, to leave things behind. Most of the things that you've left behind are good. It's good that you left them behind. Some of the things you left behind are painful. But what all of us have in common is that we have left something behind to follow Jesus. And we do it because he is the Lord of the church. Third, he is the life of the body. He's the life of the body. Verses 22, uh, sorry, 23 to 25 are the final scene that Matthew paints in this introduction. And it's kind of a summary of Jesus' ministry. And he mentions three things that Jesus does teaching, proclaiming, verse 23, and healing. Those three things. And his healing ministry, that's the focus here, is comprehensive. Every disease, every sickness among the people. Uh, news brought and spread all over Syria. Verse 24 says, and then there's this list, this list that we struggle to translate a, a little bit. Um, all those with various diseases, severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures. I think literally that's the, the translation of somebody being moonstruck. That's what it literally says. And the paralyzed, and he healed them. All kinds of diseases that people had spiritual afflictions, the demon-possessed, and physical afflictions and mental afflictions, those, they come to Jesus and Jesus heals them. It's comprehensive to the disease. It's comprehensive to the area, too. So in verse 25, large crowds came from Galilee. Uh, so he goes, in the northeast, uh, the northwest, Decapolis, the northeast, Jerusalem, the south, Judea, the south, and all the regions across the Jordan followed him, all, from everywhere. Every disease, people from all over. Actually, the way verse 25 works almost should remind you of Joshua in the Old Testament. So, Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament named Joshua. And when Joshua in the book of Joshua invades the land, he leads the Israelites into the promised land and Joshua is organized geographically. It talks about uh, conquests first to the south and then the north and the east and the west. And, and here the new Joshua it has entered the land and he is victorious over all these problems in the north, south, east, and west. He's, he's coming, coming to conquer Notice how he brings wholeness. He brings health and wholeness. That's what Christians do where we go to, when we're at our best. What do Christians do when they move into a new area where there have not been Christians before? We build things. We build churches, we build schools, and we build hospitals. Not necessarily in that order, but that's what Christians do. We bring wholeness. I wonder how that works in your life at work. Is your work environment a better place because you're there as a representative of Jesus? I wonder if you could describe that to me. Most of you are shy and modest and wouldn't talk about that. But here would be a good exercise for you. If there is someone at your place of work who is a follower of Jesus, it would be good for you to observe how... Their presence as a follower of Jesus makes things at work better. And, and you could point that out. This is one way you could encourage them. Hey, you know, I recognize your faithfulness to Christ. And because you're a follower of Jesus, this is how things at work are better. Because you're, And I'm thankful to you for your faithfulness to Jesus because you bring wholeness here at work. Notice how Jesus is pushing back in this healing and teaching ministry. He's pushing back against the darkness. He's pushing back against the darkness that we have brought about because of our own rebellion and our own sin against God. The Bible at times makes a direct connection between uh, sin and, and suffering. Sometimes that connection is very, because of this, you have experienced this. The Bible sometimes makes that very close connection. In general, though, the Bible most often says the world is broken, and it's broken because of our sin. We have rebelled against God, and the world groans under the weight of our sin. And Jesus comes to push back. We are lost because of our sin, and he calls us to turn around. We are confused because of our sin, and he teaches we are sick because of our sin, and he comes and heals. And Matthew's going to teach us we are guilty because of our sin, and Jesus suffers and dies. Here's the problem that has one solution. Our sin problem has one solution. And uh, Jesus pushes back against the darkness in Matthew 4. At the end of Matthew, Jesus takes the darkness to himself and upon himself. And he suffers in our place on the cross, bearing God's wrath. He dies, rises again, and he welcomes into his kingdom. He welcomes and gives life and forgiveness to all who will turn and receive him and trust in him as Savior. He begins this pushing back here in Matthew 4. It's going to continue all the way through the book. All of these themes we're going to see through uh, the book. That's the end of Matthew's introduction. And we're going to see this fleshed out more and more and more. Do you know the name William Allen White? Have you ever heard of William Allen White? William Allen White was a uh, a relatively well-known uh, journalist in the 20th century. This is not a great picture, but it's uh, a, one of the only ones that we can find. His, a picture of William Allen White on the left with his hero, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, he met, this is them in 1910 or 1912, he met Teddy Roosevelt in 1897, and look what he said about his encounter with Teddy Roosevelt. He sounded in my heart the first trumpet call of the new time that was to be. I had never known such a man as he and never shall again. He overcame me. And in the hour or two we spent that day at lunch, he poured into my heart such vision, such ideals, such hopes, such a new attitude toward life and patriotism and the meaning of things as I had never dreamed men had. After that, I was his man. Now, Teddy Roosevelt was a charismatic character, but he was not God in the flesh. And think about here, the Lord Jesus appears on the scene, and Matthew is describing him, and the question is, how do you respond to him? Do you see him and say, after that, I was his. That's why this story is told. And your response indicates whether or not you really understand it. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we are thankful to you for this account and we're grateful to you for the work of the Spirit and the life of the Apostle Matthew to record this for us so that we would both know Jesus and that we would know how to follow him more faithfully. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have, in our lost condition, you have come to rescue us. You have told us to repent. You have preached and uh, taught us. You have um, commanded us to leave things behind. You have invited us to join you in a mission and bringing wholeness to the world as we Uh, represent you well. Help us, Lord, in our families and in our neighborhoods and at work to bring the wholeness in your name that brings life and hope and joy. Teach us to truly let go of the things that you have called us to leave behind, that we might follow you more faithfully, you who are our Lord and Master and our Savior and our coming King. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.